We're going to go for two hours this morning. Joining me are Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw, and in hour two of the program, NDP leader John Horgan and Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. It is a rainy Kamloops morning after it was a pretty epic storm last night. So a pretty ideal time to sit down and talk some politics, which has its own storms. To talk about those, joining me are Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on. Good to see you this week. Uh, Shame when I was in Kamloops. That's right. Or just day it was. Yeah. uh, By the way, Rob, Keith, you guys don't seem to be coming to Kamloops. What's going on there? I was there very briefly in the for a 10-minute, and it was like a 10-minute stop by Clark. In, out, uh, it was pretty fast. You didn't write, you didn't call. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, we're entering now uh, endgame territory as we get set to vote next week. I was... I was talking to Bill Bennett, uh, just uh, just having a chat last night, and he was telling me that uh, he's having a real hard time kind of reading the voter, the electorate, uh, this time around as we as we get set to vote next Tuesday, saying there doesn't seem to be one galvanizing issue, and it's kind of got him, you know, having some question marks about uh, about how this is all going to turn out. Is that sort of where you guys are thinking too, or no? no? I would agree with that, Shane. I think. There, there hasn't been the, the one issue. This is not like the 2009 election with the carbon tax or 2013, which it was about this incredible fight that Christy Clark was fighting to prove everybody wrong. Uh, there's a lot of different issues that have played out. And you've also got the Greens, which is a big unknown. And a lot of people that I talk to don't know exactly how the Green vote is going to influence the outcome. Yeah, I'm also hearing that uh, that the from people inside the Liberal Party that this whole thing could boil down to a, basically a handful of ridings in the Lower Mainland. Uh, Keith, is that your read or no? Well, yeah, uh, yes and no. There, there's uh, most of the swing ridings, which can you know won by very narrow margins in 2013, do uh, uh, exist in Metro Vancouver. There are not enough of those ridings there, though, for the for the NDP. I think. Well, they have to run the table in Metro Vancouver, and that would give them the barest shot at a majority. But uh, realistically, they have to start winning some seats outside of Metro that fall into that swing category, and it's going to be tough for them to do that. I mean, uh, you look at the Yvonne got a call today looking at the travel schedule of these leaders. Christy Clark has basically traveled the province. Uh, John Horgan has made some lightning stops uh, in in places outside of Metro Vancouver, but he's largely confined his campaign to Metro Vancouver, and today he's on Vancouver Island. Uh, Albeit in a couple of the writings the Liberals uh, hold in Parksville, Qualicum, and and Courtney Comox. But uh, uh, if he's writing off the rest of the province, it's going to be very hard for him to form a majority. And the the leader's travels, I think, say a lot. Christy Clark today is going to be up in, she's in Campbell River, which is a NDP riding, and she's in uh, the Skeena riding up in the northwest corner of the province, which is also held by the NDP. So she's she's visiting NDP ridings with an eye to picking them up. John Horgan's visiting mostly ridings that he already already has, or writings in Metro Vancouver that he hopes to poach from the B.C. Liberals. But uh, the math is very hard for the NDP. And when you talk about a detached electorate, I, I agree. And that's good news for the status quo and for an, inc- <coughs> for an incumbent. Uh, Rob, you've spent some time on the various leaders' campaigns. How do you see the lay of the land? Yeah, I mean, well, just to pick up where Keith left off there, I mean, Horgan does end up in Penticton by the end of yes. the night. And so they are doing, there are a couple ridings, you know, Penticton and Boundary Simokamine, where they hope... Um, to to take those away from the liberals and it, 
the strategy becomes, you know, if the NDP do as well in Metro as, as they think they're going to do, and as some of the liberals think they're going to do, then it becomes a, a matter of trying to hold off um, the losses uh, in other parts of the province on the island where the NDP are probably going to lose a seat or two, uh, and then uh, some of the other ridings. So it's important for the NDP to win ridings like Ticton and Boundaries to Milk, I mean, just to kind of dilute um, what's going to be a pushback from the Liberals in, in other parts of the province. It's kind of, it gets to be a, a numbers game, and it's a really, we've said before, it's a really long road uh, for the NDP to win a majority government. A lot of things have to fall into place. There mm-hmm. has to be a larger sense of change, perhaps, than maybe we're seeing right now. Um, but uh, <laughs> it is going to come down, I think, to, to every riding in the, in the last few days. Vaughn, I'm, in, I'm interested to hear from you on this because you spent some uh, serious time with Christy Clark. Uh, any kind of insight into sort of uh, the strategy guiding her or what her mindset is so far? Yeah, I think <clears throat> there's a couple of things going on. One is, as, as Rob and Keith have observed, the Liberals pretty much feel that the NDP has conceded the North and the Interior to them, and in fact the Liberals are working hard to pick up seats in that region. They're not as worried as they were at the outset about losing Boundary Similkameen, uh, losing one of the seats in Kamloops, losing Fraser Nicola, and now they're doing things like that remarkable thing that happened last Sunday, Shane, where Clark took an entire day and went to Columbia River Revelstoke, yeah. which is a seat that's been solid NDP since 2005. Like, governments don't try to take solid seats from the opposition during the campaign, but there they are. She's back up north in the northwest again today. Two NDP seats up there, Skeena and Stikine. The Liberals have First Nations candidates running there, and they're trying to take both of them. One of the reasons they're doing that, and one of the reasons they're campaigning on Vancouver Island, is because, as Keith said, privately, the Liberals expect to lose some seats in Metro Vancouver, so they're trying to make sure they take seats elsewhere, so the end result is a wash, an outcome similar to the last three elections in the seat council. Yeah, that Columbia River visit is quite interesting. I know talking to liberal strategists in the days before that, they were talking, they were weighing the pros and cons of spending an entire day basically going to a riding they haven't won for a long time uh, held by the NDP, and they did some reading of the land uh, up there and decided, no, it's worth a shot. And they went up there, they visited three towns, and now yesterday, luck of the draw, a court judgment comes out, and bl- which blasts the NDP candidate up there in a defamation suit. Yeah, I was just uh, about to bring that up. Black, credi- black credibility. So that's a gift to the Liberals. I'm not sure they saw that coming, but uh, they clearly did some some strategizing and thought, you know what, this writing's in play. Every day is precious in the campaign at this point, and for them to spend an entire day up there, basically, uh, is a signal they think they can win it. Well, yeah. you know, it, to pick up on that, though, I think the Liberals recognize sometimes that the NDP fractures itself a little bit in selecting its candidates. So the candidate in that riding, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Taft, ended up being a bit of a, a contentious uh, selection for the NDP when they made it. And it leads to some hard feelings uh, amongst some new Democrats, and the Liberals try to exploit that. They're down in, in Cowichan the other day where the NDP even imploded yeah. over, the ca- over the candidate selection process. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes the New Democrats are their own worst enemy when it comes to picking a candidate. Mm-hmm. And the Liberals can swoop in and try to 
take advantage of that situation that we we've kind of forgotten about because they picked the candidates uh, months ago. Yeah, and uh, and a little bit in that territory was uh, Fraser Nicola with the Harry Lally versus the party situation as well. Mm-hmm. Although it didn't in- entirely implode, but it definitely you know there's a riding they need to win back, and they were kind of having a dog and pony show there. Interesting, by the way, in that Jerry Taft uh, just as a political sideline in the Jerry Taft uh, judgment, which I read last night. The judge actually quotes uh, uses the Andrew Weaver defamation decision to make his decision in that so a little bc poly linkage there it just got uh, just got overturned i think that's up now uh, for appeal again yeah i believe you're right uh want to dive into the coal issue i tell you what we're a little close to the commercial break and i want to give it some time so why don't we take a quick break now uh and we'll dive into uh premier christy clark setting her sights on donald trump uh, over this coal and softwood dealio uh let's talk about that here on inside politics and radio now when we come back from a quick commercial break Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. And we're talking to Rob Shaw, Keith Baldry, and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, on the campaign trail, uh, the softwood lumber issue raised itself a, a couple of weeks ago. Then uh, Christy Clark turned around firing off a letter to the Prime Minister uh, selling this uh, levy on thermal coal. A punishing levy would amount to a de facto ban uh, if the Trudeau Liberals don't bring down their own ban. Uh, it was, And then she's kind of further reframed the question, both as now an environmental issue and is who is best to face Donald Trump in these kind of trade disputes. Uh, Keith, uh, is this a bit of a gamble, or is this something that's going to pay off? Oh, I think uh, the upside outweighs the downside on this, for, at least in the short term for Christy Park. It sort of reminds people who the Premier is. I mean, she's in a position to write letters to the Prime Minister and talk about facing off against Trump. I asked her yesterday when I sat down to her, at the end of the day, you know, what power does the B.C. Premier have against uh, a U.S. President? And she shrugged that off, saying, well, you know, it's, it's better to try rather than to sit on your hands on, on these types of matters. And, and there's an open question whether she has any effective uh, power to, to stop thermal coal shipments. Rachel Notley, the Alberta Premier, says she doesn't. But uh, those issues are going to be settled after the election. In the meantime, it gives Clark a chance to sort of show everyone that she's the Premier fighting for B.C. You may not agree with it, you may not like it, but it does separate her from her opponents on an issue like this. That They can't, say, they can't match the same type of action or rhetoric that she's, uh, she's putting out there. But at the end of the day, either she underreaches, and this is all just blowing smoke, or uh, a worst-case scenario, maybe she sparks a trade war we're not exactly equipped to deal with on the United States front. Vaughn? Well, Shane, I uh, was actually a new Democrat who first mentioned this to me, that they were reminded of the 1996 provincial election, where the other Premier Clark, Glenn Clark, picked a fight with the Americans over the fishery, and all sorts of grandstanding on the issue Mm. and at the time we all wrote that a provincial government doesn't really have much power over the fishery it's federal it's national you know come on uh, a premier can't deal with this issue Uh, all turns out to be true however important point to recognize and i reminded the ndp supporter who told me about this glenn clark won that election it worked for him for the 28 days of an election campaign 
Later on, he had to retreat on some of those issues. And that may be what we're looking at here as well. I regard Clark's stance on this as cynical and short-sighted, and maybe even against the national interest in terms of access to the port. But at the same time, I'll have to conceive that this may work just fine as an election issue. Yeah, and she's certainly pumping it out there. I noted to you guys that she RT'd a tweet by a Kelowna news outlet, and the story simply titled, Clark to Trump, Bring It On. Rob? Yeah, I mean, it allows her to use a bunch of those one-liners that she always seems to have in her in her back pocket. You know, I'm not scared of Donald Trump, and I'll take him on, and kind of, you know, the Clarkisms that we know so well from the campaign, because they end up being the quotes that we, we use. She's, you know, for her, she's managed to turn uh, Donald Trump into this kind of uh, villain uh, in the campaign who is out to, you know, destroy B.C.'s economy every day the list of things that the Americans are about to destroy grows longer and longer in her, in her speeches, where she's adding in other industries, and what if they come for Okanagan fruit next, and what if they come for... And she just kind of... So she's created a bit of a narrative there, and then she is the only one who can fight back, and she is the only leader who can take him on, and it's a, there's a lot of rhetoric and bluster built around it, but picking a fight with another level of government during an election is, uh, is classic you know, uh, political maneuvering, and it works pretty well uh, to take on another government and just kind of try to portray yourself as the leader. So I think it's going to work pretty well for her. Yeah, now keep that in mind that John Horgan's doing sort of shades of the same thing, maybe to a slightly lesser degree of, of spotlight, but he was in Kamloops uh, this week and saying that uh, in Kamloops that if he wins the election as Premier, he will immediately go to Ottawa uh, and uh, go and visit the Prime Minister on an array of issues. Among those, uh, quote-unquote, with table options to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, you'll hear later on the show when I talk to John, I press him on the issue, but he basically says, uh, or wouldn't say, what those options are, uh, just saying that there's some permitting and legal uh, uh, tools in the toolkit that he can use to stop the pipeline. Keith? Well, you know, it's been an open question for years how much power the province actually has over that pipeline. Uh, he, Horgan mentioned permitting. There is a legal opinion that, you know, the, the province does control the permitting when it comes to things that cross streams and rivers. That's within the provincial jurisdiction, and that may very well where there is a fight uh, in court over uh, the construction of anything that crosses that stream or riverbed. Uh, that seemed to be the power that was at uh, Christy Clark's disposal when she was still weighing her conditions. And of course, she now views the conditions as being accepted, and she can accept the pipeline. It's, I'm, I'm struck, though, Shane, that this uh, Kinder Morgan really hasn't come up as a big issue in no. this election campaign. I think a year or so ago, the conventional wisdom was that Kinder Morgan was going to be the, a dominant issue in a number of areas. Maybe it's come up in Kamloops. It hasn't come down up much, I'm told, even by the candidates in, around the Burrard Inlet writings, that uh, other issues have come to the fore. And the Kinder Morgan pipeline really hasn't, uh, I haven't heard, other than Horgan's visit to Kamloops there, I haven't heard him or Christy Clark or even Andrew Weaver discuss that project in any great length uh, during this uh, the three weeks of this campaign so far. No, yeah, you're correct. Although the I believe uh, a couple First Nations groups united on a court challenge, which made some news a few days ago as well. Uh, it, it was kind of interesting that John made that comment in Kamloops because it kind of brought back some shades of Adrian Dix's announcement mm-hmm. on Trans Mountain Pipeline back in 2013. Uh, Rob? The gamble. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get the impression he wants to talk about that at all, really, in, in Kamloops <laughs> or, or in Fraser Nicola, for example, where, you know, the pipeline is generally viewed as something that's going to bring much-needed jobs. Uh, and uh, and he, he would like to win Fraser Nicola, so the, and I, I guess he would like to win Kamloops, too, although that kind of looks 
you would know better than I would, Shane, but it looks like a little bit long odds uh, for them in both the ridings there. But, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been an issue that has come up in the campaign, even really in, in uh, Metro Vancouver. I mean, we thought Burnaby North, where the sort of the terminus point is going to be, uh, would be a, a major rallying cry. Uh, you know, when you talk to the NDP, they say, yeah, there's a bunch of people on the doorstep um, talking to us about it. But uh, it doesn't. It has not percolated to the big election issue that a lot of us uh, thought it was going to be. And John's basing it on the First Nations. Uh, of course, one of the five conditions uh, that Christy Clark tabled on the project is to have First Nations buy-in, essentially. Uh, and it was interesting because he brought it up in Kamloops, where, by and large, First Nations have bought into the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Down the Lower Mainland, not so much, which is an interesting job. Position, Vaughn. Aaron Sam, the guy that Horgan himself backed against Harry Lally in Fraser Nicola, when I talked to him, he pointed out, the leader of the Lower Nicola Indian Band, that he'd signed a, a benefit sharing agreement on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. So the guy that Horgan was backing for the nomination in Fraser Nicola had not just mm-hmm. not just supportive of the pipeline, he signed an agreement to make sure it would go ahead and that his First Nation would share the benefits. So it's a messy issue. Um, again, I think the strongest clue that the New Democrats uh, are of two minds about their opposition to this is the fact that it has not figured in their attack ads, and they've certainly attacked the Liberals on a number of things, but they have not. They've chosen not to make a big issue out of this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and maybe maybe he should have stayed away from it to a certain degree that he did not. Uh, by the way, Fraser Nicola, <laughs> you guys will probably get a chuckle out of this. Harry Lally down there causing some trouble this week, uh, accusing the uh, liberals of buying votes with free pizza on Skeetchus and First Nation land. And uh, when we went to elections BC, and they said no, that's that's not really a, that's not really a violation. Uh, we called Harry yesterday, and and you guys are familiar with his uh, verbal barrage. Uh, so he fired back and told us, well, it may be legal, legal but it's still cheesy and sleazy. Sleazy <laughs> <laughs> uh, pizza, please, uh, with anchovies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, worth noting, the NDP the liberals will be fast to point out the NDP have been getting free pizza down lower mainland as well. Uh, we're tiptoeing towards the bottom of the hour, so why don't we take a quick break here on Radio and Now, and we'll have more with Keith, Vaughn, and Rob on Inside Politics on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back and thank you for tuning in. Uh, on the phone with me now, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. Guys, one of the uh, bigger stories over the last week was this uh, I am Linda thing, which is the hashtag that blew up on social media out of a, um, uh, I guess, a bit of video that uh, that was caught when uh, Christy Clark was mainstreeting in North Vancouver, I believe, uh, and a voter came out, a lady named Linda, and basically said, well, I'm not going to vote for you, and, and the Premier said, well, that's your democratic right, and then turned off and kind of gave her the cold shoulder, and, and that kind of blew into a whole thing. Uh, Keith, uh, what's your sort of, uh, looking back on that and all of the sort of repercussions and, and stuff that came out of it, uh, what's your read on that whole thing? Well, the initial incident was like minor. I mean, I, I was actually there. Yeah. Uh, it was no no big deal. But what where the liberals found into trouble is how they handle it post uh, incident, where they basically took to social media and tried to ridicule her. And then you saw the other side uh, push back with using social media with the hashtag like that, as, and using her as a rallying cry against Christy Clark. So the liberals 
botch this thing by giving the NDP and their political enemies an opportunity to make this bigger than what it actually was at the time. And uh, it, it was, I think it was overblown, overhyped. Social media can really conflate things and exaggerate things. And it is, social media, particularly in an election campaign, is an aggressively hyper-partisan uh, communications venue for all the parties. And in this case, the Liberals really blew it, and the NDP took advantage of it. So, you know, I don't fault them for, for exploiting this issue to make it bigger than it actually was. But uh, at the end of the day, does it move voters? Um, you know, <clears throat> I don't think so. The NDP got really excited about it. I don't think the average voter out there is going to move because of a, a sort of a minor brush-off incident with the Premier. Yeah. Vaughn? The Liberals have this incredibly well-funded, well-staffed campaign machine that won the last election and that their own supporters see as infallible. And yet, here is yet another example of how the Liberals, it's almost like they get in the back room and they go, how could we make this thing worse? I know. <laughs> Let's accuse this ordinary citizen of being an NDP stooge and a plant. Remember the business with their website allegedly being hacked. Christy Clark yeah. comes out and blames the NDP with no evidence. So these episodes, to me, add up to um, an arrogant party, incredibly smug, that is its own worst enemy on issues like this, because the Liberals created this as an issue. It would have passed notice in an hour without their clumsy, stupid response. Yep. Although it strikes me in reverse, uh, and Rob, I'll come to you in a second here, that the Liberals, if there was a situation like that with John Horgan, would would capitalize on it and, and did to an extent after the radio debate with the, uh, I forget the hashtag on Angry John or whatever it was, but, uh, but it seems to me that they too would have jumped into that pool if the situation had been reversed. Rob? Yeah, I mean, the thing about, you know, it's the backlash sometimes that really becomes the story. Uh, and the way that, the poor way the Liberals handled it kind of reminds me of um, the troll truck, which has been rolling around Metro Vancouver for the first half of the election. Um, it, it was an idea cooked up in party headquarters to uh, put a bunch of anti-Horgan ads on the side of a panel van and crash every single NDP event in the lower mainland. And someone in there thought it was a great idea. Uh, and then it blew up right in their faces because the uh, people kind of, there was a visceral reaction to it as this loser cruiser, you know, <laughs> would roll into a playground where John Horgan is talking about child tax credits and this weirdo in a van <laughs> with a bunch of, with a bunch of uh, propaganda is sitting there in the playground and it just blew right up on them and the, yeah. and the backlash happened and they abandoned it. So there, there are some really smart political operatives in the Liberal Party headquarters, sometimes too smart for their own good, I think, and, uh, and I Am Linda was an example of that, just like the toll truck and just like uh, Vaughn said, yeah. the website hacking. The thing with the troll truck that stood out to me is they were going after John Horgan on political donations for the most part, which is a huge Achilles heel for the Liberals. Takes a lot of hot yeah. to do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a clumsiness and a, a tin ear too much of the Liberals' campaigning. <clears throat> They're very good on... I mean, Christy Clark's very good with the, with the backdrop of hard hats surrounding her at a work site. It worked for her in 2013. It seems to be working for her right now. And if she sticks to the message of jobs and the economy and, and she's at a work site with workers and hard hats, that's a very positive message. Once they stray off that into this sort of spontaneous type of communications, uh, whether it's uh, the Linda in 
incident or the troll trucks, which are just so clumsily handed and botched. They really don't. They're really not very good at this, and uh, and the NDP has been able to take advantage. All right. Uh, I want to get into, uh, Keith, this this thing of deal breakers that Andrew Weaver sort of tabled. Uh, we all note that he closed a TV debate with a pitch that uh, neither of the other two parties deserve a majority government, essentially putting himself into that uh, into the balance of power situation. And we'll see how it plays out on Tuesday, of course. But uh, mm-hmm. as I understand it, uh, political donations, proportional representation and education spending are things that he will look at in a party stance he will look at in order to determine should things shake out where he holds the balance of power which party he will align with. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the fact we're even talking about a, a minority government scenario uh, speaks volumes about this election. I mean, this has never been on the table before in any election in decades that, that, that we could be in a minority situation. But uh, it, it's certainly conceivable this time. So Weaver, when I talked to him for the first time, he started t- musing about a minority government and laid those three issues out, as he called them, deal breakers. Uh, getting a party would have to agree to get rid of corporate and union donations to political parties, agree to uh, some sort of proportional representation, and greatly increase the K-12 education budget. And when I asked him whether which one he'd rather work with, Christy Clark or John Horgan, rather than taking the conventional route and say, well, that's just a hypothetical, or I'm not going to get ahead of myself, or I'm not going to prejudge the voters, mm. he really wrestled with the question and said, I'm not going to pick either one. But then he went out of his way to really... Uh, express concern about John Horgan and that John Horgan's temperament is something he could not work with or he's had, he's had trouble working with and uh, really chastise Horgan's temper which has come up as an issue on this campaign from time to time it just never seems to go away and Weaver said he could always have a respectful in his words a respectful uh, conversation with Christy Clark about issues they disagree on but not so with John Horgan which left me to believe that if push comes to shove he'd rather work with Clark than Horgan. What are your thoughts on that Rob? Yeah, well, I mean, Clark has, uh, not because I think she enjoys working with him, but because she saw a political advantage in it, you know, promoted his agenda in the legislature the last few years, helped him pass some bills. They have worked together, and so maybe that ends up uh, being a mark in her favor. I I I think the NDP are going to go hard in the next few days to try and, I think they're going to be very blunt starting today. Um, Don't vote green. You got to come if you want to get rid of Christy Clark. I think it's going to come directly from Horgan. You're going to have to stick with us in, in the NDP. They don't want to. They, I think, recognize that uh, it'll be hard to pick up Weaver's support, uh, and so they're just going to do this last-minute appeal of, if you're thinking of voting Green, if you're an unhappy Liberal, you need to come to us. And it's a, it is, a, it's going to be a tough argument because for a lot of people. That guy gets their hackles up. They don't like being told they have no option. They only have to go back to the NDP, or maybe they don't like for whatever reason. So that's what the NDP are going to try and do, I think, between now and Election Day, very explicitly. Uh, and they might even change some of their signage and messaging around that, too, to, to prevent that minority situation. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that, Rob, because if you punch in Andrew Weaver and Google and hit a search, the very first thing at the top of the page is an ad from the NDP, and it reads, and I'll, I'll just quote it verbatim, Andrew Weaver's Green Party too close to the B.C. Liberals. Fun? Yeah. Uh, of course, they ran this number on Weaver on the eve of the last election, too, and it it didn't work all that well because he won his seat anyway. Um, the minority situation, which you started off talking to Keith about there, is is really interesting, partly because we've not had one in British Columbia for 65 yeah. years. We've generally avoided them. But uh, the one thing you have to say about a minority situation, which we could be into uh, next Tuesday night, is um, there are ways that it can happen, but uh, there are no really hard and fast rules except... Well, there's a couple of things. 
the government that is in place has the first shot at trying to form a government, even in a minority situation. So if the Liberals take the most seats, but not enough for a majority, they can try to govern as a minority. They aren't obliged to enter into a formal coalition agreement with the NDP or anybody else, uh, or the Greens or anybody else. Um, if it's really close between the two main parties, then you might see Weaver enter into talks with both parties and try to get a deal. Uh, oddly enough, in spite of all the controversy around political donations, I think he would have an easy time getting an agreement with bo- either of the main parties to have a nonpartisan commission come up with a new system for financing elections. The real sticking point is proportional representation. Proportional representation would change politics in British Columbia fundamentally. The NDP supports a referendum on that, but the Liberals oppose it. So you could get a result where Horgan takes the most seats, but not quite enough for a majority, and he and Weaver end up in a kind of informal coalition. And one of the first things we get in the next year or two is a referendum that would might take us to a proportional representation, which could entrench the current alignment in the political system for a long time and mean that we never had another majority government. Mm. Thoughts on that, Vaughn, uh, Rob? Yeah, the proportional representation thing has, has flown under the radar. Um, we asked uh, John Horgan about it in an editorial board at the Sun in the Province. Uh, well, I'm losing track of time. Last week? Monday. Week? This week, yeah. And he said, you know, within by year two, he wants to put one option for a new electoral system in front of people, 50% plus one majority vote uh, to change the electoral system, and he's going to campaign for it. So it is a lure to the Greens, for sure, to say, look, come to us. And uh, and either you vote for us now, or maybe that's the lure in the coalition, and we'll change the system, and it'll benefit you. And I mean, in the long term, it causes a lot of either chaos or cooperation, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> it's a it's a kind of sleeper issue that that we may be talking about a lot more in the weeks ahead. Keith. Well, uh, Rob's point that the NDP is going to start changing their message this week or starting today about targeting green voters speaks volumes of where they think the campaign's at right now, particularly mm-hmm. on Vancouver Island. The NDP clearly thinks it's vulnerable to uh, having votes slip away to the B.C. Green Party in critical writings on the Vancouver, on Vancouver Island, particularly the south, in writings like Sandwich, North in the Islands, and Cowichan Valley. There is no room for error for the NDP in this campaign. They need every single seat they can hold, they have right now. They can maybe lose one or two at most if they run the table everywhere else, but every seat is precious to them. So if the Greens can do damage to them in one or two ridings, that's potentially fatal to them, and that's why they're going to be switching their message up. All right. Here, did you hear Clark's message change, though, yesterday as well, where she introduced the I'm not perfect line, which you're going to hear yeah. a lot from her as she tries to say, look, if people who are dissatisfied, you might be thinking Green, you might be thinking NDP, I'm not perfect, we made mistakes, but come back to me. And I think she'll be mm. at a lot the next few days, yeah. too. Uh, she of Gregor Robertson's sort of pseudo-apology in the uh, municipal election not that long ago. Uh, let's take a quick break uh, and come back with the final stretch in Hour 1 with Vaughn Keith and Rob on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. 
Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Guys, uh, a couple of the big issues that uh, the two big parties were turning their guns on each other this week was uh, for the Liberals, they're hammering away at Horgan and, and the NDP for sneaky tax hikes, uh, while the NDP have fired back saying Christy Clark is secretly planning on bringing back an HST under another name, the VAT. Uh, so I want to ask you guys uh, straight out, either of those issues pass the smell test and where's the truth lie here? And I'll start with you, Vaughn. NDP has a bunch of promises in their platform that are not costed and that are going to they're going to have to figure out some way to pay for them if they want to go ahead with them. So, uh, you know, I think there's a bit of an issue there. Um, on the HST, uh, the Liberals fumbled the issue badly, and I'm not surprised that the NDP has fired away at them. But look, uh, there is no way that any government in British Columbia is going to bring back the HST or anything like it because it would be political suicide, period. <laughs> <laughs> Rob or Keith? Well, I mean, I, I was at uh, an event with Christy Clark yesterday. She was again asked over and over again, are you going to bring an HST or VAT? She said adamantly, no, no, no. She did a sit-down interview with me. She said the same thing. So she, Ron's right, they sort of blew this by just opening the subject uh, awkwardly a few days ago. But she's been pretty clear and adamant that it's not coming in. I mean, free to the NDP to try to exploit this, but I don't think it's going over with the voters, and uh, they can fire away at Horgan for all sorts of potential tax increases, but he has said on the record, not raising any taxes over and beyond what uh, he's got in his platform, as Juan says, so a lot of his promises have not been fully costed out. So you're free to speculate. I don't think this is having an impact with voters one way or another, either issue. All right, Rob? We are all dumber for the discussion on the HST right now, because I... (laughs) That was never um, an issue. Uh, the, uh, the VAT, there's a separate thing on the value-added tax idea, which the business community wants, and throw some exemptions in mm. on machinery and production for the PST. Clark flubbed her for a couple days, and unfortunately that left open this idea that um, she might be you know, thinking of doing it. She closed the door on that uh, Tuesday. And it had been closed for the rest of the week. I went to an NDP presser uh, with John Horgan in North Vancouver at a restaurant where there was a business owner who was there, and he was saying, please don't bring back the HST. And when you talked to him afterwards, he said, well, like, where are you getting this from? And he said, well, the NDP told me the HST is coming back. (laughs) So he had no idea. So it's entirely generated from the NDP. It's the, the HST boogeyman out to raise your costs again, but that is... That's pretty clearly not happening. All right. Uh, one of the other issues I want to touch on is advanced voting numbers. That continues to be a super popular uh, way for people to vote. It set records each and every provincial election since they started doing it. Uh, fresh numbers out this morning, uh, 327,000 British Columbians have gone to the advanced uh, voting stations as of May the 3rd. Uh, rough calculation, that's just a shade over 10% of all eligible voters. Uh, is there any? Can we read anything into that at all, Keith, or, or no? Both parties, all parties, have aggressively pushed the uh, with their with their supporters to get out and vote in the advance poll. I mean, it, it's it's one vote you don't have to worry about on on election day in terms of getting out the vote. So I'm not sure you could say that the Liberals or the NDP are ahead on when it comes to that particular issue. But uh, increasingly over the years, this has become a much more critical uh, issue for parties, and that's why they spend a lot of time. Uh, pushing this uh, message out to their supporters to get out and vote ahead of time so we don't have to worry about you on election day. In terms of a percentage, it's 10% of the eligible voters, but given that half the voters... Mm. Don't don't vote. This is really closer to 25 percent of the eventual turnout on Tuesday. Yeah, and it was twenty percent last time. Fun. 
Yes, and uh, two more days of it, today and tomorrow. You can still vote advance. You can vote anywhere. And look, if uh, people don't need to believe the opinion polls to realize this is close, then they should get out and vote. Uh, one of the reasons the parties push it so strongly and so hard, and Keith said, you know, they don't have to worry about them on election day, the parties have trouble, particularly the liberals, attracting volunteers on election day. People are busy, <laughs> vote, they don't have time, they've got child care issues and all that, and they don't get out. So they're afraid of leaving people, leaving votes on the table. They're afraid of not having enough people to drive people to the polls, so they try to load up the voting beforehand. Uh, I'm not sure that a heavy turnout early means a heavy turnout on election day. In fact, given the kind of low-key nature of this campaign, I wouldn't be surprised if we, instead of a jump in voter turnout next Tuesday, we end up a little bit below where we were last time because there's just not as much interest in the campaign. Rob? Yeah, that would be <clears throat> that would be bad for the NDP. I mean, the general uh, consensus, I think, is that the higher voter turnout, uh, the more likely people are voting for change. They're motivated to come out to the polls to vote against, uh, you know, the government vote for something new. And the lower the turnout, um, the more likely the incumbent kind of just slides on through. So the NDP want more voters to come out for sure. The other issue is the youth vote, which we talk about every election, <laughs> and it fails to materialize. It's still the the, the participatory group uh, in, in casting a ballot. I'm not getting a sense there's a massive youth movement out there no. uh, to galvanize that. That would certainly help the NDP and the Greens. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see it. Um, it was key to Justin Trudeau's election in 2015. More voters, particularly younger voters, came out and swamped the, the dynamics we all thought was going to play out on Election Day. I'm, I've yet to see that, that, that impression here. All right. One of the ironic consequences of um, the NDP's decision to go very negative in its advertising campaign, and I've never, I've never seen a more negative campaign from both parties than this election. It's relentlessly negative. The airways are flooded with negative ads and really harsh personal ads. I think that's going to suppress the vote. That's going to lower the voter turnout. That turns people off. And one of the great ironies may be, after everything's said and done on Tuesday, if the NDP does not win, did their ne decision to go relentlessly negative actually suppress the vote and keep voter turnout low, which favors the incumbent and does not favor a party looking for change? We'll see on, on Wednesday whether that's the case, but that my, that's my prediction, that, along with Vaughn, that voter turnout will probably be lower than it was in 2013. Uh, I hope not, but we'll have to see how she plays out on Tuesday. Guys, we just have a few minutes left uh, really quickly before we uh, wrap things up, uh, and I'll start with you, Rob. Uh, end game territory. What are we going to see from the leaders between now and uh, Tuesday morning? Well, I think you'll see the NDP roll through uh, Metro Vancouver on their path to victory tour, where they're basically just going to hit that area as hard as they as they possibly can, and uh, that's that's an end game is is Metro Vancouver. So that that'll be that'll be theirs, and they'll be as we were talking about earlier. This rally behind me. Both parties are going to pitch, coalesce behind me, come back home, uh, stick with me. And I'll, and I'll get you to where you want to go. So that'll be the messaging in the next few days. Vaughn? The Liberals felt last time that they had no trouble motivating their own base to get out and vote on Election Day because everybody knew uh, that uh, most pundits and observers and pollsters were predicting a Liberal defeat. Their great concern this time, they believe the votes are there to give them another majority, 
but privately they worry that their own voters are taking the win for granted and they won't get them out. They'll leave a bunch of votes on the table this time, and that's probably the big thing they have to work on between now and Tuesday, is persuading their own base, uh, you better get out and vote, because otherwise we could lose. Final word to you, Keith. Yeah, uh, complacency is the Liberals' number one enemy. Uh, it's all about turnout, getting the vote out. That's going to be Christy Clark's message. And I think you're going to see Clark flex the Liberal mu- muscle outside of Metro Vancouver as well as inside Metro. They'll let John Horgan do his path to victory tour through Metro. But Christy Clark, I think, is going to point out that the Liberals are strong in Kamloops, the Okanagan, and the North. And I think she's going to be visiting some of those places. All right, gentlemen, uh, I'm hoping to touch base with you on election night, but uh, either way, we'll break this whole thing down next Friday here on Inside Politics. My thanks uh, for doing the full hour with me. Okay, Thanks. There we go. There's Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry. We're going to take a quick break here on Radio NL on Inside Politics. That's hour one. Hour two begins on the other side with NDP leader John Horgan right after the news at the top of the hour. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com. Accountable to you, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. Well, now it's time to hear from the leaders of the parties you'll be voting for, with one notable exception. The Liberals were given three weeks' notice and the option to either pre-tape an interview with leader Christy Clark or to have her live either in studio or by telephone. But yesterday morning, they finally got back to me to say she's simply too busy, which is a little unfortunate. But I'm happy to tell you we do have two of the three leaders. NDP leader John Horgan was in Kamloops this week to campaign, took time to join me in studio for a wide-ranging discussion. Let's take a listen to the full interview. John, welcome to Kamloops. Good to be here, Shane. All right, first things first, uh, you announced that your party, if elected to government, would forge ahead on the Royal Inland Hospital expansion, the phase two of this patient care tower. Just so I'm critically clear on this, this is not subject to any kind of review or second thought. Should you get into government, look at the books, and go, holy crap, what do we got here? We're going to follow through with the capital plan that's on the books today, and we're going to add to that capital plan by building roads, bridges, hospitals, schools right across British Columbia. Royal Inland Hospital's uh, patient tower is on the list, and we're going to proceed with it. All right. This community is plagued with a doctor shortage. That came up in your press conference. Uh, walk-in clinic uh, closed on the North Shore, leaving that part of the community without one. Other law, walk-in clinics it struck me as, a, as a returning to Kamloops uh, in this really, really cold winter, that even with sub-zero temperatures, minus 20, minus 30, people are still lined up outside walk-in clinics, desperately trying to get a doctor. Uh, walk-in clinics that essentially close at 9.05 once they're booked up for the day. How, yeah. do you, how are you going to address that? It, it's... It's inconceivable, it seems to me, in the 21st century in Canada that we can have, in a community like Kamloops, 30,000 people that can't access a family doctor. And, and to have, uh, you know, lining up at the walk-in clinic to get your name on the board to come back later in the day to get the services you need is just not acceptable. Uh, to, to people in Kamloops, it's not acceptable to me. We put forward a plan in our, uh, our platform to create what we're calling urgent care centers. And we, we discovered in, in uh, the Northern Health Authority in Prince George, they have primary care that they're delivering right in PG that makes sure you've got a stopgap between the walk-in clinics and the emergency room. When the walk-in clinics are failing, as they are here in Kamloops, then the emergency rooms become clogged. And, we, of course, we've had story after story after story of, of hallway medicine and, and the challenges we have in our ERs, not just here in Kamloops, but, in fact, right across B.C. 
but the urgent care center model is one where you have a place where you've got nurse practitioners, you've got therapists, you've got dietitians, social workers, doctors, the continuum of care that people need when they present at a walk-in clinic or they present at an ER if, or traditionally if you present to your family doctor. So these clinics will be able to triage and make the determination on where you need to go next. If you come to uh, an emergent care center and you, and you need a prescription, the nurse practitioner can manage that. If you need more uh, urgent care, there's doctors. If you need to talk to someone about the challenges you're feeling with anxiety or potential uh, mental health challenges, you're going to have professionals there to deal with that. And if you need emergency care, you're dispatched as quickly as possible to the ER. That seems to me to be a system that can and will work here in the short term. But in the long term, what we need to do is make sure we're bringing on more healthcare professionals. And, and that's a high priority for me. Okay, but how do we do that? Because one of the things that's been a big challenge for this community and uh, well, how Vancouver is even experiencing it, never mind the rural communities, is how do you bring doctors into communities? How do you retain the doctors that are there? And even how do you do that with nurses? Because the BCNU will be the first to tell you, listen, we've got a shortage. So mm -hmm. how do you bring these personnel in to staff a new care tower, to staff an urgent care center, to, to do all that groundwork? You need to make the profession more appealing. And right now, you're, you have health care professionals that are embattled because they don't have the help to back them up. They've got a, an endless line of people coming and presenting, and they don't have the resources to meet the need. That means that they're going to go elsewhere, find a better lifestyle. We need to make sure that the lifestyle here in Kamloops and in rural BC is compelling. And I believe, as, as you know, when you get accustomed to living in rural BC, the lifestyle is very, very appealing. It's not about tax rates. Uh, you, you hear the BC Liberals, all they ever want to talk about is, well, the tax rates are too high. You need to make sure that when, you're, when we're, we're uh, graduating new uh, doctors that we give them an incentive to stay in rural BC, whether they're uh, in the north or here in the interior. And that starts by making sure that you're helping them with their student loans, perhaps, or other initiatives and incentives to keep them in BC, to keep them in rural British Columbia. We need to have that. It's not been working effectively. The BC Liberals have had 16 years, and that neglect is now catching up with all of us. On your platform and what you're sort of pitching in British Columbians, you keep facing the question of how you're going to pay for it. Now, I know that if, if I put that straight to you flat, you'll say, listen, uh, our budget's fully, fully costed. You want me to say it for you? Or do you want to tell you? <laughs> I'll tell you. It's fully costed, uh, yeah. and of course, it's based on, on the provincial uh, numbers in February. Right. So, uh, But there does seem to be some gray areas, and I know you're going to take a panel to wind down the MSP, but people are constantly asking, well, how are we going to do this? Because there is a potential for impact on the British Columbians. Don't people deserve to know before they vote? Well, there is an impact on British Columbians right now. Now, the BC Liberals have doubled medical services premiums over their time in office. In fact, they just increased them again in January. And so for that, the BC Liberals, particularly for Mike DeYoung to say that somehow this is a big hole in the budget, we're collecting those taxes right now, but we're doing it in a way that's unfair to British Columbians. You make $40,000 a year, you make $400,000 a year, your MSP premiums are the same. That's not fair. We're the only province in the country that has this wacky way of collecting revenues. We're going to fix that. That's my commitment. And in the first term of an NDP government, MSP premiums will no longer exist. But, and with fairness to what you're saying, you know, you have a point with the BC Liberals. I'm not saying they're, they're angelic on this thing. And even yeah. the Premier has said that this is a, a terribly archaic and useless tax. Now they're sort of defending it. After is, 16 but, years, but you that think said, that if it was that terrible, he would have done something about it. But that said, voters still need to know how you're going to go about doing yeah. it, John. And, yeah. and that's why I think there's some gray well, area here. Well, don't, don't we want to table some options so they can go, well, yeah, we're going to vote for that or we're not going to vote for Let me lay it out for you one more time then. Uh, not just you, but your listeners. Yeah. Uh, we have said that we will cut in half medical services premiums starting January 1st, 2018. And we will put in place a panel of prominent persons that are employers, employees, those familiar with the system. There are a legion of people working in government at the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Health, who have been working with MSP 
for many times their entire career. We'll put those people to task and find the fairest way to eliminate medical services premiums. These, this unfair tax, this flat unfair tax, and make sure that we're delivering the services we need in health care and also protecting low and middle income families. So they're going to be ahead at the end of the game, not falling behind. So in protecting and protecting them, then are you pledging that, that once you figure out a way to wind down the MSP, that there won't be some kind of financial levy, some kind of tax increase, some kind of burden on taxpayers? Well, we have look, there's a burden on taxpayers right now now. I mean, this is, the, this is where I think Mr. DeYoung likes to make mischief here, that this is somehow new. We're collecting this money now. The province, the B.C. Liberals, are collecting money, $2 billion worth, from British Columbians, and it's doing it through an unfair, regressive flat tax. Every other province in the country has done away with that. We're the last ones in the game. I think it's time we joined the rest of Canada and provided health care services in a way that's fair for everybody. And we're going to do that by putting in place a panel to figure out how we make up the difference and we do it in a way that, that protects low and middle income families so they're actually ahead at the end of the game, not further behind. Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, obviously, <laughs> diverging views of that project in this community compared yeah. to uh, the Lower Mainland. Uh, if, uh, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you said that uh, if you were elected, you go to the Prime Minister with options to oppose the pipeline. Correct. Specifically, what options would be on the table from the province to, I'm assuming you want it stopped, to, yeah. so how would you do that? What kind of tools are in the Provincial Toolkit? Well, we, we're not going to lay that out tonight on the show or today on the show, but let me tell you this. When we started talking about Kinder Morgan and the Trans Mountain Pipeline, now almost a decade ago when the, the, the notion of, of twinning the pipeline came forward, it was never, in my opinion, in the public interest, in the public interest of British Columbians, to put at risk our, our coastal environment, to put at risk our marine economy. And, and we've made that pretty clear. I think a seven-fold increase in tanker traffic is just a, a too much of a risk, and we need to defend our coast, and we've been clear on that. When I talk to the Prime Minister, there's a range of issues, Shane, that I want to talk to him about. I think this is a great opportunity for a new government in British Columbia and a relatively new government in Ottawa to find common ground on housing, on making sure we're getting the transfers for health services that we need. I think the government caved in their discussions on health care just uh, prior to the, the budget we tabled here in February. And I think that we need to also talk about a national energy board approval process that we felt here in British Columbia, many, many, many British Columbians felt was not adequate. And I think that's the big challenge, is that people no longer have faith in our environmental assessment processes. And that's also very much evident here with the Ajax project as well. If the public doesn't have confidence in our processes and our institutions, you're going to have an, what in the mind of many is an illegitimate pro uh, project. So we need to fix that. And I think that talks, that is too new government sitting down and saying, how do we put forward some way to make sure that when industrial activity comes forward, we're able to embrace it, we're able to, to talk to the community about how this can be done in a sustainable way. That didn't happen with uh, the Trans Mountain expansion. It's not happening with Ajax here in Kamloops. You know uh, you've helped how many different times I've been on this program and numerous other people. It's a divisive issue, largely because people don't have confidence in the, in the process. I'd still like to hear some kind of clarification on how you would oppose it. I mean, you've, you've been you know, in and out of provincial government your entire yep. career, so you must have an idea of what's in the toolkit. There are, there, are, there are legal options available, there are permitting options available. I'd like to leave it at that. Uh, I will say, though, that just today or last night, uh, the Squamish First Nation joined with the Tsleil-Waututh First Nation in their legal appeal that involves both the federal and provincial government. So there's a whole bunch of balls in the air yet. This is far from over. That said, the local First Nations here are all on board. 
Uh, well, and, indeed they are, and, and there are, but there are gaps along the corridor as well. But at the end of the day, uh, Ms. Clark and the B.C. Liberals said that First Nations buy-in was integral. It was one of their conditions, and that just isn't happening in the basin. At the terminus point, uh, the terminus point of the pipeline, there is significant opposition. We'll be right back with more from John Horkin, who answers questions on KGHM Ajax, the provincial debt, and First Nations on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Let's jump right back into that interview recorded a little earlier this week in studio with NDP leader John Horgan. Your party uh, is going to lift the tolls. No more tolls in the Lower Mainland. Uh, the BC Liberals are going to put a $500 cap. Now, Christy Clark was in Kamloops, and I have to admit this irks me a little bit, when she accused your party of basically taxing Kamloopsians uh, to pay for the lifting of the bridge tolls, which she would too under her plan just slightly less so yeah. i don't see i don't see a stark difference here i see degrees of the same i think that for me it's about fairness and and for the bc liberals they're trying to get out from underneath a, a hole that they've dug themselves into the only place in in the province that has tolls on public infrastructure is south of the Fraser and, and I don't think that's fair and I believe that uh, the people on Vancouver Island want to support uh, my initiative to accelerate the twinning of uh, Highway 1 from here to the Alberta border and, and we'll pay for that as all provincial assets are paid for. The province is there not to re represent isolated areas of British Columbia or regions of British Columbia but all British Columbians and if we're not paying tolls on the bridge in Kelowna we're not paying tolls so skiers can get to Whistler faster. Why should people that live south of the Fraser have to pay tolls to get to work and back every day? Well, having lived south of the Fraser for a little while, I can agree with you on that. But uh, I do want to know how you're still going to deal with the debt issue on those bridges, which is significant. And you'll say, well, Shane, I'm going to use the prosperity fund to weigh that off. But everyone will say, well, John, that's going to buy you two, maybe three years yeah. if you're lucky. So what's the long-term plan there? Because that's, 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 that's rich debt is long-term. It, it's refinancing that debt, which is how uh, provinces and the federal government and public institutions have paid for public infrastructure forever. You amortize that just as if you're putting a, an addition on your home. You don't say, I've got to pay for this out of this year's budget, out of this pay packet. You pay for it over the long term. And again, I think that where the liberals have created a problem that I'm trying to fix is they put in place a tolling system on a bridge that they deemed was necessary. It wasn't approved, it wasn't embraced universally in the Lower Mainland. The Port That's Man true. was not the biggest problem. Patella was the biggest problem, and it sits continuing to almost fall into the Fraser River. Well, it's been neglected by liberals. So the liberals created the problem. I'm trying to cr instill some fairness in this so we can get back on track with building infrastructure for everybody. And the notion that uh, people in the north don't benefit from uh, Port Man, I think, is short-sighted because when we can move goods and services from the interior to our ports in the lower mainland, that's a benefit to everybody. And our infrastructure on the island is a, it belongs to the people in Kamloops. The, the in infrastructure in Kamloops belongs to the people on the island. I think that element of fairness has been missing from the BC Liberals, not just on infrastructure, but a whole range of other issues as well. But in lifting those tolls and dealing with the debt on the bridges differently is going to shift a pretty good chunk of stuff uh, on the provincial debt, which is already spiraling well out of control. I, were, I thought we were going to be debt-free. That's what it said on the Liberal bus not, <laughs> not four years ago. Yeah. What but, went wrong there? But still, in this campaign, John, it still strikes me that we're not talking about that enough. Like, the debt is significant. Uh, the Liberals will tell you, well, listen, we're wiping out the operating debt. Well, that's fine and good, but there's still yeah. a massive, massive chunk of debt that is rising by the hundreds of millions of dollars each and every year. So how would your party deal with paying that off? Well, we're going to have to all dig a little bit deeper and, and push that out 
a few more years into the future. Decisions have been made over the past 16 years by BC Liberals to jack up the debt. In fact, on Christy Clark's watch, the debt has gone up more than any other Premier in BC's history in dollar for dollar. Those are big challenges. We haven't touched upon the BC Hydro debt, which has put us at, at, at a, a credit watch by the, the uh, bond rating agencies because of the amount of money Hydro is spending and not getting enough back from ratepayers. And, and our, we ratepayers have already had an 87% increase in our Hydro bills. So the BC Liberals have created a bit of a problem here, Shane. I can't fix it overnight, but I want to make sure that as we go forward, as we deal with the challenges that have been created by the Liberals, we do it in a way that's fair for all British Columbians. And I think at the end of the day, most British Columbians agree with that. And, but there's a sense, too, from the BC Liberals and from people that are going to vote for them, and I don't know how much this overlays into undecided voters, that your party would contribute more to the debt, that you're going to rise all these taxes, that you're going to you know, put more of a financial burden on British Columbians. Liberals will say it every single day. John Horgan's got sneaky yeah. tax hikes. John Horgan's going to do this. John Horgan's going to be a financial wrecking ball. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I would suggest that if we look at the uh, accounts right now and the social deficits th that's been created by fighting with teachers, for example, we have a massive, massive expense ahead of us to make up for the, the court-imposed solutions to the crisis in education. We just talked about Royal Inland Hospital. We just talked about how we're going to be trying to attract and retain new health care professionals. The BC Liberals have created this mess over 16 years, and it's a bit rich for them to somehow say that John Horgan's a problem here. We have a bunch of messes, Shane, and I want to try and fix them. I want to make life better for British Columbians, more affordable, and make sure that the services that they depend on are there for them when they need them. And an economy that works for everybody, that's not happening right now. You know that from the challenges here in Kamloops, but also uh, in the lower mainland and in the north. People are, you know, we're giving up those family supporting jobs and they're being replaced by temporary low wage jobs. Wages have been flat for a decade in BC. We have among the lowest minimum wages in the country, the most unaffordable jurisdiction in Canada to live in. These are all huge problems and they all happened on the BC Liberal Watch. For them to somehow say, that's my fault, is an abdication of leadership in my opinion. I want to circle back to the First Nations issue. Uh, it caught my attention that, that you're pledging a, a sort of a dramatic shift in the provincial government under John Horgan, uh, its relationship with First Nations. Uh, first off, how would that affect existing land claims that, that uh, cover a wide swath of this province, including entire communities? Well, we certainly have some challenges ahead of us, First Nation and non-First Nation. But again, this was not something that happened overnight. We've had successive Supreme Court rulings, the most recent one, the Silcoteen decision in 2014 that established without any doubt whatsoever a unanimous decision that Aboriginal title exists not just in law but in reality. And there's a map now that says from here to here to there is Chilcotin territory. It belongs to Chilcotin. It always has belonged to Chilcotin. So where do we go from here? We now have unequivocal evidence that this is the case, this has always been the case in this area, and uh, future court cases, should we go down that route, will come to the same conclusion. So what better course of action? Do we continue to go to court and spend millions and millions of dollars, First Nation and non-First Nation, or do we sit down and figure out how we go forward from here? I think most British Columbians understand that the time is long overdue to find that partnership we need so we can all work together in harmony and make our economy work for everybody. How do you do that though? I get the complexity of that issue uh, and all of the history and the weight that comes with it, but I mean, how do you forge that way ahead that, that, that builds bridges and brings those two communities closer together uh, when there's so much hard feelings on either side and some fears, quite frankly, yeah. in some communities that, yeah. you know, if this goes south, suddenly this home I bought over here is going to yeah, be on no. First Nations land. No, I don't, I don't think that that's a concern. We, we As we've developed the treaty 
treaty process, and not, not all First Nations are involved in the treaty process, but private land has always been something that's not on the table. And I, and I believe that as we come to reconciliation and accommodation with First Nations, we're going to have to make sure that we abide by certain principles that are acceptable to everyone. And I, I've not talked to any, and you could stand to correct me, Shane, but I've not talked to any First Nations leaders in my time as leader of the opposition or in my time involved in public policy that has said that they want to take away someone's home. They want justice on the land, the land that they have occupied for millennia, and I think the time is long overdue to make that happen. It'll allow us, in my opinion, to make sure that our resource development can happen more seamlessly in partnership rather than obstruction and opposition. I think everyone in BC, regardless of where they come from, and of course we're a, a province of First Nations and immigrants. My father came from Ireland to make a better life for himself. I'm, I'm benefiting from that decision, and I believe that there's an abundance in British Columbia available for everyone. If we have cooperation and consensus, we can achieve just about anything. And, and that's why I got involved in public life in the first place, and that's why I'm passionate to speak directly to British Columbians through your program and say, you know, there is a better way. The conflict and the adversarial approach that we've seen, the, the constant backbiting and name-calling from the BC Liberals has not helped. We're not further ahead today. We continue to have an opioid crisis a year after it was declared an emergency. It's worse, not better. So why is that? I believe it's because the BC Liberals are constantly blaming someone else for the problems that they have created, or at least that they have been on, on watch when they've happened. I think a better way forward is to work together, everybody, to try and make life better for British Columbians. And that's the, the essence of our campaign. And I've been proud to, to go to communities right across BC talking about that. If Terry Lake was listening, he'd be the first to say, oh, you're making politics out of, of a dead Not at all. I'm, not, I'm saying that, that, that a health crisis was declared a year ago, and it's worse today. That's not Terry Lake's fault. That's just the way it is. So what's the responsibility for all of us in that? case to dig a little deeper to work a little harder to resolve that and I believe that a change in government will help in that regard because for too long the same people now Terry's uh, taking a walk and good for him but and I don't mean that in any negative way I don't want to get calls on that Terry's uh, stepping down and going on to other pursuits and good for him I, I genuinely wish him well yeah but that does not absolve the government for the responsibility they have as the keepers of the purse and the people that are managing our health care system I believe it's time for new eyes that I believe it's time for someone who's working directly for everybody, not just those uh, that are paying the bills or writing checks to the political parties. All right. KGHM Ajax is a divisive issue here in Kamloops, probably more so than Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, viciously opposed by the Schwetmick First Nation, have come yeah. out absolutely against. Uh, it's under two environmental assessments, provincial and federal. So uh, where does your party stand on that? Since you've drawn a line in the sand on Trans Mountain, are you going to draw one there? Yeah, well, we also have the, the uh, local council also looking for additional studies, I understand, on air quality. Uh, and so th there's no shortage of, of controversy around this. I believe that uh, when all is said and done, the community is not unanimous on this question. And... As those processes run their course, federal, provincial, and municipal, I think we'll be a, have ample time to talk about what comes out of that. But it, it's a concern to me because I want to see economic activity. I want to make sure that, that, that we are able to benefit when, when commodity prices are high. But I also think that there are some projects that just don't make sense. And, and I'll leave that up to the process to conclude. And should I be in a position uh, to look at the results uh, as leader of a government, I'll be happy to do that. But I know, I know full well that the people in this town, the people in Kamloops, are are very much divided on it. And that, I have to say, Shane goes back to my initial point about 
lack of confidence in our, our processes. It's been 25 years since Mike Harcourt brought in the Environmental Assessment Act, and the Canadian Environmental Assessment processes are not much younger than that, and I think it's time to retool, and that's one of the things I want to talk to Prime Minister Trudeau about. I understand that if you've got a transboundary pipeline, you need to have a national approach to that in the interest of Alberta and the interest of British Columbia. But at some point, we've got to be able to say, look, this is just not going to work for us. What other, what other course of action do we have? And, and I think the process is the start of the problem. All right. Uh, two quick questions to finish this off. And to keep on that subject, uh, how much weight would a John Horgan government put on a First Nations stance either for or against a project in its decision-making process? Because, and, and, and you know, if you look at Trans Mountain, First Nations here are for. You look at it, KGM Ajax, they're against. So how much mm -hmm. would that put... How much weight would that put on you? Well, what I'd like to look back at where we've had success here in British Columbia, and I, I look at the land use planning processes that we did when there was the so-called war in the woods. There was, uh, there was divisiveness about uh, particular types of logging, clear-cut logging, old-growth logging. And what government at that time did was they brought people together, First Nations, communities, uh, investment, uh, workers, and they figured out a way forward. And I think that the way forward on our environmental assessment processes and on getting approvals done for industrial activity so we can have good paying jobs and in, in, in not just to here in Kamloops but right across BC is to have everybody at the table. Now we have a process that excludes First Nations. We have Supreme Court rulings that say we can't exclude First Nations. So somewhere along the line we've got to, we have to harmonize those processes and, and legal determinations from the Supreme Court. That hasn't been happening. I think both levels of government, federal and provincial, have not taken advantage of what Silcoteen presents as an opportunity to sit down with First Nations and say, how do we get buy-in from you uh, and other nations on projects that are important to economic prosperity for all of us? All right. To close out the interview, uh, I read an interesting profile on you. I believe it was the Globe and Mail. Uh, one of the things that caught my eyes, it said you sort of run your team like a, like a sports team. You've got little sports names for everybody and all that kind of yeah. jazz. And you're not afraid to kind of, you know, take them aside and give them a critique on, you know, what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. So I'm curious if you could tell me, if John Horgan could take himself aside for a critique at this point, what would you tell yourself? Well, I, uh, I've been running pretty hard for the past little while. I like to pass the ball. I've been moving it on to <laughs> my colleagues to make, uh, make statements. You're supposed so to that, carry the ball. Yeah, John. well, not if, you, not if you're a team. <laughs> you carry the ball if you, everybody scores at the same time in the sports that I play. You know, the guy who puts the puck in the net is the one that puts his hands up, but everyone else jumps on top of him saying, way to go. So my critique of myself is that uh, I've got to work a little bit harder. And I say that every day when I get up, and uh, when I put my head down, I say, what are we doing tomorrow? And I, and I think that comes from uh, not just a sports background, but having had cancer and, and thinking that tomorrow could be the last day. Let's make it the best day possible. And that's how I've approached this campaign. And I think that's why I still got a smile on my face, Shane, is that I, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm happy about the prospect of uh, leading a government that's working for everybody, and I'm going to work as hard as I can to make that happen. Has this been hard, uh, considering what your brother is dealing with? Well, yeah, well... Yeah, it's, it's been tough, but there's nothing he would like more than to see success, not for me, but for the people of BC. So I'm doing this for him. Thanks for that. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, you've heard what John Horgan had to say after the break. Green Party leader Andrew Weaver joins us in Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you again for tuning in. On the line now with me is Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. Mr. Weaver, welcome. Hello and good morning. Uh, th by the way, thanks for hanging on the line. We got to you a little bit later than we planned, so I appreciate that. Uh, uh, how are you doing these days, by the way? How, what's your read on the campaign? You're getting uh, just days away now from, uh, from Truth Day on Tuesday. 
Yeah, no, it's great. I, I'm glad you had me online there because I got to listen to an ad, which is yeah. kind of summar- summarizing the way this election is going. Is that rather than uh, rather than actually telling British Columbians what, what parties stand for, we've got all this negativity out there where the BC Liberals are attacking the BC NDP and the BC NDP are attacking the BC Liberals, and and now they're throwing in the BC Greens as their attack ads. You know, we're just working hard to give people something to vote for. You know, we know that 45% of British Columbians don't vote. And that's a shame. We have outstanding candidates in and around Kamloops area, and and we're we're just excited, and, and things are, are going well for us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that ad because I was going to bring it up as well, and it struck me, and I want to bounce this off you as well. If you Google your name, Andrew Weaver, uh, the very first thing, Andrew, at the top of the page is an NDP ad, and I'll read it verbatim for you. Andrew Weaver's Green Party too close to the BC Liberals. What's your reaction to that? <laughs> Well, again, this is the problem with the BC NDP. They've had 16 years to inspire people to vote for them. And rather than doing that, they spend all their time telling people what the BC Greens apparently do and believe. You know, I prefer people ask us what we do and believe. And we're not going to we're not going to worry about the NDP or the Liberals. We're here to say that we offer a vision, a vision for the new economy that puts people first, a vision that's exciting, that's grounded in evidence, that was recently endorsed. Uh, by Dave Crisco, the co-founder of Club Penguin, one of Canada's, or uh, British Columbia's most successful tech companies, and recently bought up by Disney. You know, we've had uh, outstanding support uh, from across the board. And you know, when when parties resort to, to negativity, what they're doing is they're, they're 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 suppressing voters. They're turning people off the whole political system, and that is a shame. We want people to come out and vote, vote for who they want to vote. We think we're inspiring people to vote for us, and let the other parties continue doing what they're doing. The Liberals uh, are also pumping your tires, Andrew. You must be aware of that. To some degree, they're counting on you to bleed votes away from the NDP to get wins in key ridings. I've never seen a Premier or a BC Liberal Party in campaign mode be more positive towards another party as they are to you. Well, actually, that's not correct. Um, In Kelowna, uh, we have a very strong candidate, Alison Shaw, running against Norm uh, Letnecker in Kelowna Lake Country. Pack ads going out there and press releases in my own writing. The banner pages across the top of the local news are are basically saying uh, Weaver's tax and grab, or I forget what it is. Uh, so there, so we, there's a reason why I've been in Parksville Qualicum. I'm going there again tomorrow. We know we can win Parksville Qualicum, a liberal stronghold. I'm heading to West Vancouver, see the sky. We know we can win that one, a liberal stronghold. So. So, you know, there's, there's a myth out there that somehow, you know, BC Greens only take voters from, from NDP. We know we're doing well in Kamloops. That, that has never been a BC Green stronghold. But our exceptional candidates are inspiring people to actually vote. Same in Vernon. We have a very strong candidate there in, in, in Kelly Westgate doing really well. Rita Geisbrecht up in uh, caribou Chilcotin doing very well. So, so you know, the, uh, what, what happens is... is, is you know, people need to actually vote for what they want to vote. If the parties actually stopped trying to bully people to vote for what who they want, and rather said, this is our vision, we're inspiring you, come out and vote, we'd see uh, different politics in B.C. We're the Wild West out here, we can do better. B.C. Greens are there to help, help us do better, because neither of these other parties can be trusted with, frankly, a majority government. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, because I was going to bring that up as well. You mentioned that in your closing remarks of the TV leaders' debate. Is that your message to voters right now, to give your party, at the very least, the balance of power? I think it would be very healthy for democracy if uh, the B.C. Greens held the balance of power in, in, a, in a minority government, because we can ensure then that policy that is put forward is grounded in evidence, we can ensure that transparency is there, and, and we can ensure that the key issues for us, things like 
dealing with climate change, things like proportional representation, things like getting big money out of politics, these issues would actually move forward because we would ensure that they would support holding a minority position. Earlier on this program, uh, we were talking to Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw and uh, Keith Baldry, and Keith mentioned uh, his interview with you in which you tabled conditions for whom you might align yourself with uh, should that situation emerge uh, after votes are counted on Tuesday. Political donations, proportional representation, and education spending are key issues for you should you find yourself in that situation. Is that, is that about right? Exactly. And I, I would add, I mean, I, I haven't said, of course, but I would add climate change uh, mitigation in there because, but, th- but both parties, I'm sure, would be willing to, to work in that regard as well. So these are, the, these are the key areas. You also mentioned in there, and Keith's view anyway, that you came very, very close to saying that you, w- you couldn't work with John Horgan because of his temperament issues. No, what, what, what I actually said in the interview is I said, I, said, I said this. I really, really want to work with the BCNDP. I really do. I wonder whether they want to work with us. Because this, this question is about who you would want to work with should be posed to others, too. Because, you know, you, when, you, when you're, you know, the question is always asked to me, who do I want to work with? I've said time and time again, we'll work with anyone. The question should be posed to others. Would they work with us? And, and I don't think that question is being asked to the leaders because the behavior of some would, would suggest otherwise. You know, if I look at uh, the kind of whisper campaign online and the, 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 the very personal attacks coming from certain areas you know i would suggest that some people don't want to work with us so, and that that's a shame you uh, took a, a, a shot from John Horgan in the debate, and you're very active on social media to your credit, but you often get into some interesting situations, and uh, he took a shot at you, and I'll quote, uh, you're on Twitter at 2 a.m. taking shots at teachers. You need teachers and education, man. <laughs> well, actually, uh, that's a nice quote. The reality is that he was referring to an exchange that I had where uh, I had a meeting with a uh, member who came in as an executive member of the BCTF, and we had a meeting, and then, then a hatchet job was, was done on me and sent around everywhere, a revisionist history, revisionist meeting, uh, a history of the meeting that I was at. And it was not 2 a.m., mm-hmm. it was about 11 o'clock at night, and everybody knows when you're on a campaign, you're not getting to bed till very late. And, and I simply pointed, I uh, just simply responded, uh, put out a picture where the, um, uh, that particular BCTF executive person, uh, who, who was not coming across as I'm just a teacher, she, she introduced herself as a member of the BCTF executive, where uh, she was clearly clearly uh, campaigning on behalf of uh, the person running against me in the BCNDP, and also uh, she made some statement about how she's enjoying trolling and being being uh, on the on the internet. So, so I, you know, I just put that out with no commentary and and suggested. Uh, that uh, this was inappropriate. Yeah. So, you know, Mr. Horgan, of course, well, and this is the problem with, with politics, it swings that as to, you know, attacking teachers. It's never been farther for the truth. I am a teacher. My wife is a teacher. My family members are teachers. We're putting $4 billion in public education to support teachers. They're our number one priority. So, uh, you know, what, what, what I think is a bit rich, and this is a question I posed to BCTF. Why have you not been willing to comment on our plan? I've posed it time and time again to their president. We're the only party investing in public education, the only one. $4 billion over four years. And that's a matter of our top priority. Yet they're not even willing to comment on it. Instead, they try to hatch a job, the leader of the BC Greens. That's the kind of dirty politics that, that turns people off. And that's why, uh, you know, I think British Columbians need a change. We need to get BC Greens elected across the province to actually reclaim our democracy for the people of British Columbia. 
One of the, I think it's fair to say, the biggest decision that you and your party made in this election campaign uh, was the decision to ban union and corporate donations. That's played out in ways I'm not even sure you anticipated uh, when you made that decision. I was talking to Adam Olson the other day, uh, and he says the move, quote-unquote, sent the party in an entirely new direction. Looking back on that move, uh, are you surprised with how it all turned out? Oh, absolutely. We had debates internally. We had some candidates who were very, very upset at us for, for doing this. We had some external people who were upset at us. But, the, you know, and we, we've historically got between 10 and 15 percent of our donations from union and corporate donations, and we were ramping up for an election. We started to see the emergence of corporate and union donations coming to our party. And we thought, okay, if we're going to be principled in this, because we want to take the others to task for banning big money, we can't do this without actual, well, at the same time accepting it. So it was a risk. But it played off. We've had thousands and thousands of new donors to our party since that happened. And our, we're setting records month after month in terms of fundraising since that happened. So it's very, very exciting. We made the right decision. And it, it shows, shows us that people in British Columbia want politicians to do as they say and, 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 and not just you know, pontificate about what's good for others, but not actually be willing to practice what you preach. You sent out a release, or the party did yesterday, you're setting a new fundraising record in April, 50% higher than any other monthly donation record prior. Uh, but you're not saying exactly, or the party's not saying exactly, how much money was donated. Why not Why not reveal that figure? Uh, I, I actually, I don't, personally, I don't know that figure. I know that we were raising on, you know, 10 to 15,000 a day. Uh, I don't know how much that happened uh, uh, over the course of the month. Uh, we were some days with more than that. I know that uh, I would suspect that the previous record was March, but I don't actually have all the information. Uh, I don't know why they didn't release the number. I, I would have, if it was me writing it, I would have released the number. Um, that would have been, but I, 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 I didn't. Uh, I didn't write the press release, and and uh, you know that's. I don't have access to the actual detailed uh, financial information. Okay, but are you committing to putting the number out there? Uh, I, we're going to have to on election BC. All right, Andrew. I know you got a campaign event at eleven, but I have a couple more questions. You okay to hang in the line for a sec? Happy to. Okay, Andrew Weaver. Uh, more with Andrew Weaver here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Green Party leader Andrew Weaver. Uh, Andrew, one of the big political stories this week uh, was Christy Clark on thermal coal, sending a letter to the Prime Minister uh, mentioning uh, that this could perhaps be a retaliation for U.S. softwood tariffs, uh, but on the campaign trail, she's trying to frame it as an environmental issue. Uh, this falls in very much into your wheelhouse. So what's your take on that whole situation? Well, you know, I, I, I've been in the legislature again raising the issue of uh, U.S. thermal coal exports coming to our port. You know, Washington, Oregon, and California have all said no. Uh, here in the wild west of D.C., it's bring it on. Uh, it's a bit rich. You know, while I, obviously I support the efforts to, uh, to take these steps, it's a bit rich for the premier to do this a few days before the election and claim it's on environmental ground because of the fact that uh, when I raised the motion in the D.C. legislature to do precisely this, I was voted down by every single MLA in both the BC NDP and the BC Liberals. In addition, uh, I was the only MLA, the only MLA who signed the Defend Our, Our Future uh, student uh, initiative across British Columbia to try to get MLAs to, 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 to pledge to take steps to limit thermal coal. And I signed it and I posted it on my wall as the only MLA. So, you know, thermal coal is, has no future. Uh, we're, we're replacing it with natural gas everywhere and renewables. So, so this is 
this is a, a you know, a, a, it's, it's a clear political stunt to try to, um, to, to, to show that you're strong and stand up and, against Trump and be a leader. It's actually reckless in terms of the continued continuation of how this is playing out. You know, she was clear very early on that she'll take steps to do that. That's fine. Good. Now, you, now it's becoming nothing more than a cynical ploy in an election campaign. And, and she really needs to, to step it back because we're, we're negotiating, you know, the United States. We're not negotiating with a, a public. You know, this kind of aggressive behavior may, 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 you know, not end up being the most uh, appropriate way to move forward. I do support eliminating or taking steps to, to, to uh, reduce or even stop thermal coal exports from our ports, as other states have done. But I wouldn't do so in such a confrontational manner because I don't think it's helpful for uh, negotiations. All right. Final question here. The NDP, as we discussed, are turning their guns on your party, trying to get those voters who perhaps have gone green or going green uh, back into the fold, uh, try and secure some seats. The Liberals uh, are doing their own messaging around the economy and uh, news of uh, a day or two, the Premier kind of saying, listen, we're not perfect, uh, but we're the best party to deal with whatever issues they're tabling. Uh, what's the end game for yourself and the Green Party going into Tuesday? Our end game is to continue to try to inspire people to vote. 45% of British Columbians did not even vote. It's a sense of pox on both your parties. If the, if the British Columbians vote, especially the youth of the day, actually vote for what they want instead of out of fear against what they don't want, we'll have a very different situation in BC. We'll have a, whatever, whoever forms government, we'll have a strong green presence, whether it be majority, minority, or other. Strong green presence to ensure that politics is done differently, to ensure that people's issues are put front and center, and to ensure that we actually focus on public policy as opposed to political spin and rhetoric, which is far too common in the BC legislature. And I encourage people to look at how I've conducted myself in the legislature and compare that with how some of the others have conducted themselves. If you conduct yourself with the appropriate decorum, you can actually put forward good policy and get it passed. If all you do is abuse each other in a negative way, nothing gets done. And sadly, we have far too much of it in British Columbia politics for far too long. Are you going to get any sleep on Monday night? Uh, <laughs> have I had any sleep for the last two weeks? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, got, I did get, uh, you know, my, my, my team felt sorry for me yesterday, and they... Uh, booked uh, a hotel in downtown Vancouver so I can get a two-hour nap in the middle of the day. But uh, apart from that, it's just you get sleep when you can. Um, and um, sometime today I'll find some sleep. All right. Mr. Weaver, uh, th thank you. I know you're busy on the campaign trail, so I appreciate you making the time. I appreciate have you having me on the show. Thank you. All right. And I'm sure we'll hear from you on Election Day. So there you go. You've heard from John Horgan. You've heard from Andrew Weaver. Uh, I regret not getting Christy Clark on the show. I would have liked to have heard from her as well. Uh, but we will uh, be back here on NL next week to break down the election results.